Welcome to the Don't Die Podcast, sponsored by Aloe Treatment Centers. They're out in Malibu. They're in Silver Lake. It's a treatment center I started with some friends. We want you to get the right treatment, the right program for you, and stop dying. Guess what? That's a good intro. Mike made that. I want yeah. to thank Mike Mart, our fabulous Yay, producer and Mike engineer Mart. and former bandmate of mine for putting that together. That's an old song. I think Look at That House Up There by Thelonious Monster that was never put on an album because it's just so mediocre. <laughs> well, it does a good job doing it's got what a good it does guitar now. riff. Yeah. But what? the lyrics were horrible. Did Mike Who's play that the guitar? fucking singer of that band? Did Mike play that guitar? Is that why it's on there? Yeah, I think so. Oh, cool guitar riff. So, uh, and that was from the night, I think that was like 92, 93 or something. I don't know. But uh, so, so there was some emails that I saw that I, I think were connecting with parents who were trapped in this addiction thing, right? Right. Because well. not only are we counselors, but we got, I was almost going to say something pejorative about our adult children. <laughs> <laughs> Don't, don't. Because they listen to this and then my son will text me, like, are you talking about me on the podcast? No. No, I no, wasn't. It was the, it was the was, other kid. It was referring to the newborn. <laughs> yes, it, it's Sydney. So, oh, so she's we, terrible. Yeah, she's on drugs. Oh, my God. So, so we have adult children and we've dealt with that. And we know what it's like to spend a, re- a, a sleepless night when you tell your kid no and he tells you to fuck off and... And, you know, they're 22 years old and you don't know where they are and you don't know what they're doing and you're so nervous. We, Chuck and I both have lived through that. I lived through it in the, in the early 2000s. I had the support of Harold Owens, a great counselor, a friend of mine. You've lived through it recently. I've been there trying to be there for you. Mm-hmm. And now we're just going to try to help the families that are going through this stuff. It is hard to say I'm, I'm not giving you money. I'm not paying for a hotel room. It is so hard. It seems like it should be so easy. And then I remember paying for my son's hotel room and being embarrassed, and I didn't want anybody to know. You know what I mean? I remember you telling me, oh, I, I gave him 100 bucks, And I go, you <laughs> bastard. You can't do that. Yeah. You know, it's like... Uh, I think I've given your son 100 bucks too. <laughs> probably. <laughs> I'm a soft touch still to this day. And moms or dads or... You, you, you know what it is? The last 10 or 15 years, it's dads that are the weak links more than moms. That's what I've noticed. I'm definitely the weak link. Even with Sydney, I'm the weak link. Well, it's because you're getting old. We're getting nice. We're getting nice. I just don't want any problems. That's another thing that parents are going through. Is it easier to give 100 bucks and have your kids still like you or not cuss you out or tell you he's going to kill himself? I mean, let's just be blunt about this. These kids will say some crazy stuff to you in order to get a hundred bucks. And why not? Oh, they'll do correct? it for 20 bucks. Yeah. There, there are some, I don't, I think they understand the power that the words have because it's effective in getting what they want. But I don't think they understand the deep psychological trauma that trauma. It, 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 it produces in the parent. It's so insane. It's like, um, you know, and then, when it comes to a time where your kids appear to be doing all right, like this, this mom I know that listens to us, who I, she's a great lady. You've met her at the other place, Lisa. She's got a couple kids that are in recovery. Now, what do you do once they're doing okay? Because you're waiting for that phone call still. You're oh, waiting right. for things. I mean, it's so hard to relax and get back to being a parent. Not only is it, is it bad when it's happening, but the in-between times are just like waiting. It's like in-between shark attacks. I'm waiting. 
Yeah, like a two-month period when they're in sober living or something. Oh, especially when you hear, man, everything's going so good. It's oh, like, oh, Jesus. No, oh, you my didn't God. just say that. <laughs> everything's going so Every, good. Everything went from shit to great in a month, mm. right? And th- what Dr. Drew calls that is the flight to health that addicts have, right? The, also, a component of flight to health is the pink cloud. We all know it, right? I... I believe once you get over the hump and the cravings go away and the obsession goes away and you start to possibly, you feel physically better, right? Right. You're, you're feeling emotionally better because you're around healthier people. You're not on a hustle all the time. Clean clothes. Right. Clean clothes. You got television to watch or places to go and stuff like that. You have activities, right? Mm -hmm. But the, the deep stuff, the, the addict shadow self, I call it, it's always there and it's coming back. Right. And somehow they identified it years ago. Overconfidence is how the shadow self operates. Right. Shadow self is an old Jungian term, I think. It's an old, old psychological term that there's this shadow self that that they were trying to explain, you know, the the Christian dim idea of angel devil on your shoulders. Right. So they called the devil part the shadow self. Right. Okay. <laughs> so I just adopted that that the addict self is the shadow self. That it's always there. It always wants to shoot heroin. It always wants to fuck things up. Right. Okay. Because you know it's just different ways of looking at the same idea. Yeah. Right. It's nomenclature, whatever you want to call it. <laughs> yeah. It so so the shadow addict self, it's almost like a green light to the addict self when you become overconfident. Right. And when you talk to sober people that have really gotten sober, I was I was always in doubt that I was going to stay sober. I was not confident I was going to. And I've been sober now for 22 years. It's crazy. Right. The, but I remember right, right. No. time and time and time and time and time because it went over a nine year period of time that I was so confident that I get it now. I get it. I get it now. Oh, I'm never going to use again. I don't yeah. want to use again. And this sobriety, the real sobriety was, I would wake up in the morning and go, I don't want to use. It's, is this the day that it's all going to fall apart? And no then kidding. that puts yeah. you into action, right? The doubt, the worry, the, the kind of, am I going to relapse, puts you into action where you go to meetings, you go do what you're supposed to do, you tell people how you're feeling. That into action that's described in all the programs, right? There's another thing Mike and I were talking about before you got here, and I appreciate that you come in traffic to come all the way out here, Chuck. I that's do. Cool. That's so, cool. So Mike and I were talking about how it's okay to say you're in a 12-step program. Like, like they don't know which program I'm in. I was a heroin addict. I'm not in Overeaters Anonymous. I'm not in... Do you know there's an Emotions Anonymous? You ever heard of it? No, I, don't I got the care for I got the big book emoji. They're overrated. You, you, we need an, Mike. We need an intervention on Chuck. He's he's being controlled by his emotions. He's powerless over emotions. He's scared of emotions. Well, of course. So so there's emotions anonymous, readers anonymous, anorexics anonymous, uh, marijuana anonymous. There's all the anonymouses. But when you're known as heroin addict, right. it's a pretty slim choice of what anonymouses I'm in. There's, yeah, I just always sure. thought it was a phony way of hiding, you know, keeping to the traditions and whatever. Well, the, you know, when we look at the traditions, though, it's the idea. Well, we're not looking at the traditions. 
Well, do you, oh, you can't what name which traditions we're looking at. I don't know. Well, you know what? I guess the idea is is that we don't make money off the backs of that of the programs, and that we don't use the programs to further ourselves. Okay, stop right there. Ask yourself about the recovery industry and say you don't. You do. I do. Everyone that works in recovery does. I refuse to answer that question <laughs> on the grounds that I may incriminate myself. So, anyways, what I'm trying to say is that that. Parents are listening and they want direction. And, and what they're getting from the psychobabble world is an idealized world that does not exist. I, I supervise people. I see what the therapists are saying to parents about, about what they're supposed to be doing and what they can expect and what they have to do and what the right thing to do is. And it's so unrealistic to our society, to how those therapists raise their own fucking children. That's a crazy thing, Right. Right. Because who do you think the therapists call when their kid's on drugs? Me. Right? It's crazy. And I'm the one that goes, you know, we try to do our best. Like, we're all fuck-ups. Oh, well, you've got to do this and you've got to do that. But then when push comes to shove when your kid's on heroin, you're like, what do I do? Well, what about all that shit you've been t- telling parents for years? No, that, that's a big <laughs> deal. I mean, that's hard when it comes time to do what you've been telling people to do. And to, I mean, that's where the rubber hits the road is... is how much are you willing to commit to? And do you believe what you've been saying? And I believed what I had been saying because I'd seen it work once before in my life with my oldest kid, so I, I did it again. I mean, it didn't make it any easier. It's still... That's goes- the thing that's lost, is the empathy of how hard it is to do. When you're sitting in a clinical office in a rehab center telling a mom what to do, it's sterile and it's not real. And you have to be able to put yourself in that mom's shoes like... What is it like? We're telling her two months from now, when you don't even talk to us anymore, this is how you're supposed to say and behave and all that, right? I noticed in my sister, who had a tremendous codependency problem, who she passed away now, but, but she could say all the right things and never did them, and then was ashamed that she didn't do them. Then she would lie that she did them. And then huh. that creates the perfect split for the, the addict, like, she's lying to you, Uncle Bobby. She never said that. That My nephew used to tell me that all the time, right? And the reason why I'm so passionate about this, I lost my precious little nephew, Brian. He was an asshole, but I lost him, right? Of course he was. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you know, it's so hard to separate what is the addict self and what is the true self, right? Because it's all Well, certain big... behaviors you know you're just going to get with someone who's addicted. There are certain behaviors that they all do. And that's not who that person is, but there are certain things they got to do to stay loaded. When, when my nephew st- started showing signs of addiction with Pod about 16, 17, my sister tried to blame me that I, I introduced him to rap music. Well, that's probably why. <laughs> the the, the rap it, music makes the kids do the pod. Does it really? Yes, it does. <laughs> so I, I, so I, I didn't know how to, how to deal with it. And you know how families are, and we butted heads and whatever, and I feel bad about it and, and try to make it right. But I was so defensive because a part of me is like, is that true? Is that why he's smoking weed all the time and doesn't give a fuck? You know what I mean? Because I was, this was when I was like three years sober, two years sober. I was like lost myself. And here I'm trying to like be hip with my nephew and... You know, and, and, no, and I, I like the fact that you were three years sober, <clears throat> excuse me, and you were lost because I expect people with 30 days to have their shit together <laughs> and they're just not getting it together quick enough. 
I know my story, but I know I was extra fouled up. I know that the only reason I wasn't in the gutter is because, well, whatever, it was a bunch of circumstances. But I, you know, I got lucky and I wasn't in a gutter and I hadn't lived in a car for a long time and I hadn't been homeless in a long time. But I mean, I didn't think I was ever coming back to be able to do normal stuff. I didn't think I'd be able to function in, in the normal world. I mean, there'd been too much damage done. Well, here's, a, here's an interesting thing. So I, you know, I got to do a once-in-a-lifetime thing yesterday. It was the craziest thing. I, I felt like I was on acid. It was so crazy. A friend of mine asked me if I wanted to go to Nashville to see uh, the Penguins play in the Stanley Cup. That's his team, right? I love baseball. It's hockey, Chuck. Yeah, that's what I love hockey. <laughs> so, <laughs> so we flew out there at noon yesterday, watched the game, and flew back after the game. And I was on the ice when they won the cup, and I got to hold the Stanley Cup. Yeah, I saw the pictures. It was the craziest thing ever. Uh Now, now that's not a reason why I got sober all those years ago, but I was told things beyond your wildest dreams would come true if you just would not use. And yesterday was another one of the promises, another one of the examples that is never lost on me. You know what I mean? It's never lost. Like, all I did to be Dr. Drew's partner and have this wonderful life and have these kids and be... All I did was not do heroin. Well, and, and all you these to, you things came true. You had to be a fantastic true. person on top of that. But, but I don't like placing so much emphasis on... See, here's an interesting thing. People will not talk about what program they're in, but they'll talk about what they do in that program. We work so hard. So I, I, I obviously, if you're going to be sober, there's some, some things you're going to have to overcome. That's how I present it. Whether you do it with the steps or whether you do it in therapy or how, whatever the fuck it is. You're not going to stay sober unless you face what an asshole you are. You're yeah. not. So this bragging about me doing something that was paramount to staying sober, to brag about that or to even talk about that, is, it's sacred, that, that stuff. And I don't like talking about it, whether it's in the rooms or outside the rooms. If you stay sober, you are going to have to do certain things to develop a healthier, more whole self and a healthier, more whole perception of reality. Right. Well, the the 12-step programs aren't the only way, but they're the way I did it and they're the way a lot of people I know did it. It's not the only way. But Not I, I, only drug addicts and alcoholics are doing it, everybody's doing it. Seven billion people are doing it. Trying to become more whole, trying to be better parents, trying to, uh, to be better employees or better bosses. Mm-hmm. Everybody, through religion, through just personal growth, are trying to develop and, and become more whole, better uh, more have equi- more equanimity. Everyone on the planet. I don't like it when people that have addictive disorder brag about how superior they are to everyone else. <laughs> I am not superior. I am inferior trying to become adequate. No, that's my favorite thing is when people go, we're above average intelligence. <laughs> <laughs> really? You've ruined your life with heroin. <laughs> yeah. Ooh, that's genius. A, that's, a, that's interesting. <laughs> but, but truthfully, that thing that happened with the penguins yesterday, about five times I was like, all I did was sleep on Chris Hoy's couch, not do drugs, and then get a job, and then not do drugs, and then start playing music again and not do drugs. And the whole thing was all the way, 21 years and eight months 
of not do drugs, whatever it was and not do drugs. Right. Right. And, and it, these promises, the, this life beyond your wildest dreams, it happens. But a lot of times it's promised that it's going to happen overnight or it's going to happen. Like my life was shit for like six years, really. I don't want to tell newcomers that, but no, I worked in a restaurant. No. I worked as a messenger. No, because it does, it does get better, though. If you come from where you were, if you come from where I was, it does get better. Even if you're washing dishes at Millie's, yeah. it's still better. That's why Having that's why your we own struggle. pad, but I, I, I hadn't had my own apartment chuck in like four years. That was amazing. And mm-hmm. Millie's enabled me to have my own apartment, right? You're talking about a guy who had owned a home, Right. right? And now is so grateful to be able to shut this door on this shitty one-bedroom apartment in, in what was the ghettos of Silver Lake. Now it's like the elite part of Los it's been Angeles. gentrified. <laughs> but I told you I went by there. I paid four seventy-five a month for a one-bedroom apartment, utilities included. It's now twenty-four hundred dollars a month. And there was Mike just pointed out that I was around a lot of good people. Mike, can you turn that air conditioning off? Just push the button, it'll, it'll take off cool. So cold. I got the air conditioning fixed. I know, it's crazy. It's fucking freezing in here. It's Arctic. <laughs> it feels like the polar bear exhibit in SeaWorld. I was just so it happy was, it was blowing yeah. out of the vents. You have no idea. That it was is. a three-week debacle. It's nice. So, so, But I got to work with cool people. But see, I think cool people were always available to me. I just turned my back on them to go use drugs some more. No, you did. You stopped talking to me. <laughs> yeah. That was an error. But, the, you know... And, and I like the fact that you, you brought it back to that as all I did was stop doing what was killing me. All I did was what was necessary for my survival uh, at most root level. It wasn't about any spiritual growth. It wasn't about getting any better. It wasn't about becoming more. It was just about not Stopping the dying. suffering. Not stopping dying. The, well, mine was, well, I had jail. I had prison over top of me. That's another thing that I can't underappreciate. When you're trying to motivate a 20 or two year old kid, you can't forget I was 35. I was facing prison. That was a fucked up spot for a college educated guy. You know what I mean? And that, that, that fear of prison was a great motivator. I don't know that you have to have that, but you certainly have to have some sort of motivation for right. wanting to get off heroin. And it can be just pain. Pain is a great motivator. Well, one of my best friends got sober in the most elite of circumstances. And I always say, how, how do you think it all made sense to you? And he goes, just day after day, I just wanted to die. So it doesn't matter. You know, every person's story is individual, right? right. To him, you know, every day wanting to die was no different to me down in, the, down in Hollywood Boulevard Every day I wanted to die, nor expected to die, or there would just seem like no hope. Hopelessness is what it is. And then, but what steers people to just don't do drugs, don't do drugs, it's a combination of, I think it's that my life is getting better and it and there's a place that I want it to be, right? That's this promises idea, right? That's why they named the rehab promises. You know that. Okay. People don't know about... Isn't the most famous rehab in the world promises? Well, they've got the best advertising. <laughs> well, that must be the best. It's got to be. <laughs> so, so TV doesn't pro- lie. Think about it, though. We just gloss over the fact that the most famous rehab in the world is called promises. Because if you just don't drink and take drugs, if you're just courageous and don't do that, 
beyond your wildest dreams will come true, right? Having a kid at 55 years old, that was pretty crazy. Wasn't yeah. expecting that. You know what I mean? When I got sober, I wasn't like, you know what? I think I'll start a new family when I'm about 55. <laughs> In about 20 years, it'd be a good idea. <laughs> Once I grow up and I'm relatively more mature than an eight-year-old, I think I will start a family. So you could go ahead and start anytime now? <laughs> you just got to wait till you're ready. Yeah. You know what I mean? What I always say, water seeks its own level. Look at Mike. He's older than me. Not, not many people oh, know that Mike is older than me. I didn't know that. How, how, you, how old is your youngest, Mike? Eight? Mike Mart. Yeah. Eight. So, so, and you're two years older than me? Yeah. <laughs> he's just yelling yes. Well, as long as you he don't put a number on you, he's fine. I know Mike Mart. He's just yelling yes now because he doesn't want this subject. <laughs> that was the most shut down we've ever gotten. But, yes. But, yes. But yes. lots of our friends have done it. We're, we're so emotionally stunted. I mean, we were 28-year-old infants walking around Hollywood. <laughs> so it just makes sense. you got to stay sober at least 20 years until you grow up and become a, a civilized adult. Right. So, and then we're ready to go. I, you know, I hope we live long enough to enjoy what we've learned. You know, that's the thing is I'm going to have to live to be about 150 <laughs> to make good use of what I've learned. <laughs> it is. It's a long haul. But to, so, so now what parents want, getting back to the parent issue... They want a promise that I don't know that their kids want, right? They want them to fully thrive. You deal with parents all the time. I always ask the parents, what do you, what do you expect here, right? So they want to believe in the flight to health. They want the kid to have a job at three months that's going to lead to a career, that's going to lead to this, that's going to lead to self-autonomy and all this kind of stuff. And I, I bring them back to my story. I was completely lost, I was 35 years old. I was sleeping on somebody's couch, right? Mm -hmm. Don't, your kid's 22. Yeah. Give him a chance. He doesn't, he's, you know, he doesn't know how the world works. He's going to have to learn that. That's going to take five years, right? He has to learn the, about relationships. That's going to take another 10 years. So we're talking about 15 years before he's going to start behaving the way you think he should. And you want it like by fall. Well, yeah, no, but you know, my, uh, one of my boys was going, he went through a pretty emotional thing and he, and he, you know, it was asking me for advice and it was just like, you know what, man, you're doing so well. I, I don't want to take any of this away from you. You know, you're doing a good job and I want you to be happy with the decision you make. I want you to have credit for your successes. And if things go sideways, I want you to be able to learn from it. Both, both of them. But you know, all I want is for him to be, uh, you know, it's just some Content, just content, happy in this existence, man, and healthy. Those are the two things that but, are super But you important. know you can't make that happen, nor can any therapist, nor can any of this stuff. It's a journey. And parents don't want to allow that their kids are on their own journey. Right. Right? Oh, it's hard because they do it in their own time. And it's much slower than it should be. <laughs> you know I, I mean? Coming from a guy who got so for 10 years ago. How long ago? 19. 19 years ago. So you were how old? I was 30. 30. Well, I was 35, so, right? Yeah. So how can we expect our kids to get sober at 19? I know. I, I, I you know, because I just expect they them, should. Watch this segue. I just don't want them to die. Ooh. See that? So you would say don't so die? So this is not some gimmick like all these other fucking bullshit, you know, self-help <laughs> things. 
This is actually something I believe in. I believe we need to help this millennial generation not die so they can get back on their journey. Uh-huh. And their yeah. journey does not have to include 12-step abstinence-based reality. Because, because in fact, some of them will catch on to that and like that right away. I got this third, a third, a third idea. I've been brainwashed by my education and addiction. I just, I, it's hard for me to accept new ideas about it, right? So and when I was in school, they had the old ASAM, a third, a third, a third idea. Have you ever heard of it? It was a third of the people introduced to the solution to their alcoholism would immediately embrace it, though they may have difficulty in the beginning, they will catch on pretty quickly, okay. right? A third will battle, argue, multiple relapses, multiple treatments, but eventually they will catch on and, and become have it will make sense to them and they'll uh, remain abstinent and thrive and whatever right a third will never i don't want us putting 19 and 20 and 22 year old kids in the never pile right just because they don't like the ideas right now yeah i don't that third or third or third just is is too clean of a bow on that that just seems like i mean in an anonymous environment i don't know where you get numbers on those from hospitalizations and treatment centers right it's been going on for 40 years asam the american society of addiction medicine you want to know you don't want to just attack the thing and say i don't like those numbers right like trump does you don't want to be like trump yes i do (laughs) he's the president so no but i know it sounds shocking but the idea is when you look at who achieved sobriety and how they base sobriety is not on whether that addict like the rehab centers do asam is based on rehospitalizations right so you're hospitalized for for alcohol poisoning you're hospitalized for a car accident related to alcohol you're then hospitalized for treatment for alcoholism and then they measure that you got treatment for alcoholism and then you weren't rehospitalized for other alcoholic related problems they okay. consider that the, the the success pile. Okay. Right? The second are just doing that like what I did. If you look at my hospital admit record and and you know, alcoholism related stuff, it goes on for nine years and then it stops. Right? Okay. The there's there's a part of the population and I hate to say it, they usually end up in prison, right? When you look at the statistical data of addict uh uh come kind of over a long period of time many of them that are in that third category that will seem to never uh catch on and change direction in life and and stop all these hospitalizations and and institutionalizations that that's that prison population so it's a way of explaining why do some addicts why is it why is it that i'm in the second third is how i see it when prison was threatened to me, I fucking, I took it seriously. There is a whole nother part of the California penal system that they were just like, fuck you, and you know, you become woods and stuff, right? That's that third. I think it explains it, what you see in the society pretty simply. You have the Yahoo 12-step world, multi-generational, there, you know, you go to the Go on Laguna Beach Boulevard out there to the Canyon Club. You'll see multi-generational first thirds. They drink the Kool-Aid from the moment they heard about it. They recite the Kool-Aid 40 years later. They surround themselves with new multiple generations of Kool-Aid drinkers, I call it. 
Son, it's, an, it's a pejorative thing to say, but you know what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah, you put it. You know what I'm saying. Yeah, those Well, bastards. I don't think, I, I think those people can help the Kool-Aid drinkers, but they can't help the second third, which is me. No. And they keep saying the second third, there's something wrong with us that we're not Kool-Aid drinkers. No, that's the no, truth. That's... And I found a second third of people who were sober. Chris Hoy, Gloria Scott, Buddy Arnold. They said, you don't have to drink the Kool-Aid. You just need to hang out with us. Mm -hmm. That was the beauty of the 12-step world, right? right? Meaning, okay, there's those guys over there, front row guys. Here's the back row guys. We're all in it. That's the beauty of it. Not one side's right, one side's wrong. We're all recovering from a system that works for both crowds. Amazing. Now let's take the third third, third the prison population. They know about the other two-thirds. They've met them. They've met me. They've met On their my way buddies. Yeah. <laughs> right? Every time they parole out, they end up knowing about the program. Mm -hmm. Right? But somehow it never makes sense. To me, it always made sense. Why would I keep coming back to it if it didn't make sense? I wouldn't just... Why wouldn't I go some other direction? Yeah, it didn't make it easy to swallow. So I think that yeah. what's happening now, because people are being introduced to it at such an early age when they're not ready for it, that rather than lump them in the, they're not willing, they're not ready, they're not, we just say they're, it's too young for them. We'll be here. We love you. It's okay. Right? That's what I would like to see more of. Yeah, no, drop a bug, drop a bug in their ear and, and let them know we'll still be here. And then being there, because people like you and me, we need to be there. Because otherwise, the Kool-Aid drinkers who got it the first time are going to be there. <laughs> and these kids are going to wander back in, and they're not going to get it. Which part are you in? You're, are you in the second third? Absolutely. All right, the second third. I want, I want, that might be another movement, too. The, right? second, the second third. A lot of my second third brothers and sisters are leaving. Yeah, well, right? from, from 1985 to 1997. Well, Jack is a second thirder. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He's like the leader. He's the leader of the tribe down there. <laughs> he's, he's an interesting fellow. He's the Clancy of the second, second third. He's a, he's a good man. I, I wish he'd talk to <laughs> he us. Really, he really is. So, so anyways, I, wanted, I wondered, don't you, don't, you under, don't you think like, I didn't get sober for promises, but promises were told to me and I watched them happen over and over again. Doesn't mean shitty things don't happen, but... These things that never could have happened, right? Mm -hmm. Even five years sober, nobody was going to invite me to go somewhere like that. They weren't because I'd be late and I'd be complaining and whatever. And like, oh, I wish I was rich and could go like this. <laughs> and, you know yeah. what I mean? You know what I mean? You're so lucky. Instead of like, this is awesome. This is amazing, right? No, I've had a lot of those things just recently, though. It seems like the last... Uh three or four years it just seems like it just started Fun happening like stuff. yeah like like 15 years sober i never expected it to start happening but like the last four years i've been invited to more things i've been to more places the people i've had in my life have been more positive i don't know if that's because i'm i'm more gravitating positive. towards more positive you know what? people me and my friends we used to all hate the same shit and now we like the same stuff we all grew together you know kind of? yeah well it's, instead of being a group of people that all hate something we're a group of people that all like the same stuff and it's totally different. There's a positive spin on the negative thing that used to pull everybody together. Is kids a lot of part of it? Because most of my friends, it's, all we talk about is kids a lot of times. 
kids, it's schools. It's a part of it, but it's not the only part of it. You know, music is a big part of it. Music? Music is a big part of my life. Yeah, that's weird. I don't know. I, I, I like writing songs. I don't really like going and seeing bands. I don't know why. See, I do. I'm a fan. I like seeing bands that I don't know, but I mean like friends of mine's bands. I, I don't know. I get weird about it. Oh, I, I still do. Because are you a songwriter? I pretend to, yes. So Mike is probably one of the I was telling Chrissy about it. Mike is probably one of the greatest songwriters of a generation, right? He can hear you. I know. He's going he's gonna to say, oh, no, no. <laughs> but he really is. And to be re with him all the time is so inspiring. It makes me want to write songs because that's how it kind of was, right? Mm-hmm. When I go see a friend, like a friend of mine wants me to go see her son's band, right? And give him some pointers. Like, I'm just so hypercritical about songwriting <laughs> that I can't help myself. And so I tell the truth. Like, they say, what did you think? I go, well, a couple of the songs, that one song, I just only talk about songs, right? Mm-hmm. And they don't, that's not what they're asking. <laughs> they're not looking for song criticism or song telling you why a song was good. And that certainly suggests that the other 10 songs weren't that good. Right. I can't help myself. I've done it my whole life. Like, if anybody asks me, so what do you think? Did you like it? I'm like, I tell them. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, no, I won't ask. You know, no, but that, that's the truth. I got to talking with Mike on the way home last week, and I've got like 10 songs that I recorded, like really light version, demo versions of on the computer, that it, songs that I did with my brother before he died. Oh, okay. And, and it's just like, you know what? The idea of having him hear these snippets, I don't want to. Because it's freaking Mike Martin. I'd like him to help me So you have the same feeling about him as I do. Yeah, it's just like, well, I've got this excuse. They were written on a ton of methamphetamine, and they were written in the middle of the night, sometimes up for days. Yeah. So there's, there's, and and there's this theme of, oh, Mike can straighten that out for you. (laughs) But I I doubt he'll ever hear him, just because I've heard his stuff. It's amazing. Yeah. So I was trying to fill Chrissy in. And we were looking at old Tex and the Horseheads videos, and she was like, holy shit. You know what I mean? <laughs> like these songs, it's the songs. Music is only about songs. It's not about your outfit. It's not about jumping around. It's not about all that. It's because most of my friends were outfits jumping around bands until they got serious about songwriting. You know what I mean? I mean, I always think of Jane's Addiction's first song they ever wrote was the Mountain Song. Oh, that's great. That's fucking... That song is that's, phenomenal. That's yeah. so depressing for other songwriters. <laughs> the first song they ever wrote. Coming down the mountain. That's the first song they ever wrote. I quit. It made me want to kill myself. I was like, oh my God. So... So uh, anyways, the idea is that uh, songs are the things and that, that's kind of prevented me from going and seeing things and I really should reapproach that because I do want to help. I'm just like, when I'm listening to a band play, I'm criticizing the song. I'm like, that, that lyric that on the verse was bad. Oh, see, I just try and enjoy it. I can't it. enjoy I, I can't it. Relax. I've got the songwriter poison personality. Oh, man. Uh, that would be rough. Mike, can you come in here? We need to talk about this. Oh. <laughs> Did you hear that? Oh. Oh, oh god oh no when you go see a band can and you see bands because you you do sound right do you sit there with a songwriter's mind and go oh jesus and that chorus is like do, do you do you do don't you he does yes i do 
it's hard, right? Because then people ask you, what did you think? What do you say? Well, you know, I always say that. I always zero in on the best song they had. And I say, I really liked that song, right? That's so you can avoid talking about well, the other songs. There's so many, there's, there's like a quality of songwriting that's lacking, you know? Oh my God. Of, See what I'm saying? So here's the weird thing we've got songwriter poison damage, right? He sees bands every night of the week, and I avoid it because I just can't, I don't want to hurt people's feelings, right? There's some that have amazing songs and nobody notices. So do you go up and praise them and keep yes. them inspired? Oh, so that's another thing. And I gig. actually give them better sound. <laughs> <laughs> do you get them another gig? But I silently give them <laughs> Who wrote the Big House song? A Big House is a Texas song. Oh, really? Yeah. Who wrote the music? Text it. You're kidding me. Oh, no, that's a great song. That's Seriously? a beautiful song, it's a beautiful man. Song. You didn't help her with the bridge part. Come on. Yeah, we, you know, of course. I mean, we. <laughs> Everybody at home our, needs our to job, listen to texting the horses. The horses was to straighten her stuff out. So, what could she play? E to G you know, to C. She could C? play the chords and stuff, and she was great. That bridge is so great. Yeah. Okay, I'm gonna go back to. <laughs> Mike Mark can't accept praise. I saw it. I've never <laughs> seen him like that. That was excellent. So. Uh, Anyway, so the point being that, so you like going out and enjoying music. It's hard for me. I do like going to see music I don't really care about. Like, I'll go see Beyonce or, you know, not Beyonce, but uh, Lady Gaga or Radiohead. Like, all the big acts I'll go. Well, see, that because would be I, fun, but I would be up so far away removed that it wouldn't be fun. You got to have your son working on the crew. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I get. I got it. One of them has like to I'm get going, a crew job. I get to go to see Tom Petty because of the crew stuff. Don't say that. My wife listens to this. She wants nothing more than to go to Tom Petty. Oh, really? Yeah. Maybe we could arrange that. It's on our bucket list. No joke. Really? They're yep. play, he's playing the Rose Bowl. Right. Up, I know. Like, and I struck weeks. out. I struck out. You got to get your kid in show business, dude. Hmm. Elijah's going on tour on the 15th with the Warp Tour for three months. No way. Yeah. You got to get him in with where, you know. Where it benefits you in some way after all the yeah, suffering you've had. I'm starting to think. <laughs> starting to think. Maybe I Elijah should. Elijah called me the other day, or texted me. He goes, do you want to come down and see Towns Van Earl or whatever? Because he was working at El Rey. Mm -hmm. And I really wanted to, but the El Rey Theater on Wilshire Boulevard is a long ways from here. Yeah, it is. That's quite a... It's, it's like an hour, yeah. hour 15. But if you really wanted to go... I did. I did want to go because I would not criticize that kid's songs. I'll tell you that. Okay, he's Steve Earle's son, named after Towns Van Zant. I think I could trust that he knows how to write a song by his name and lineage alone. <laughs> how could you? What if he can't? Oh my god! What, see, I would expect that the shoemaker's kid don't have shoes. I would expect that poor kid would have a Lennon curse. No, well, the Lennon curse is weird. Oh, and Mike's going to come in and talk about Towns and Earl. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> what's his middle name? Towns, Town, what's his name? Towns something Earl. Justin Towns Earl. Justin Towns Earl. Um, but but is, he, is he a great songwriter? I just figure he is. Like, how could you not? He grew up around one of, he grew up around one of the greatest songwriters in American culture, Steve Earl. There's a there's a the, the, another thing about music. There's an album by Steve Earle called uh, "The Other Side." You ever heard that? Yeah. So so you know when you're on drugs and you think everything's about drugs, 
yeah. songs are about drugs. <laughs> <laughs> of course. Mike was friends with Steve because Steve respected Mike. Everybody respected Mike, right? So I got to be acquaintance to Steve from Mike, right? Mm-hmm. So I get this new demo album called The Other Side. It was his like third album or something. He had Copperhead Road and whatever. So And I go to rehab, right? With the with the cassette, these were cassettes with a Walkman. That's yeah, no, how I remember. Old I am. And you could speed them up and slow them down. <laughs> yeah, and it wasn't like the official release. It was like the demo record company version. I listened to that thing every fucking night. And there was a song called "The Other Side." And there's one line where it goes, "I seek refuge in aluminum steel," right? So in my mind, while I'm listening to it in the rehab, he's talking about smoking heroin on tinfoil. Of course, aluminum <laughs> steel. It's gotta I be. seek refuge in aluminum steel. He's talking about motorcycles. So I guess <laughs> I thought it was about smoking heroin on tinfoil. Copperhead Road. Copperhead Road. No, it's about but anyways, see, motorcycles aren't good. So, anyways, you. we got to get one of your kids' uh, show business gig. Got to stagehand in the next something. week and a half, so that I can take my wife to see Tom Petty. Yeah, I would have a happy marriage. Oh, okay, well, we'll figure it out. <laughs> we can figure it out. So, so, anyways, the promises come true not in your time frame, uh-huh. but in God's time frame. That's what the, the literature talks about. Just. It's not in your time frame. That's all that young people need to know. And why can't we apply this to sobriety? Sobriety is not in your time frame, mom, dad. Your child's sobriety is not on your time, in your expectations, but it's in your child's natural kind of progression and putting two and two together. So what parents can do is help the kid put two and two together, which is when we come in, and the 12-step world comes in and anybody healthy and, ha- and wants to help steps in and says, I know it's so hard, but you can't pay for a hotel room. I know it's so hard, but don't give them a hundred bucks, right? I know it's so hard, but they can't spend the night in your house. What do you think about the cell phone? Because I deal with moms all the time. I say, I don't I pay say, for them. Okay, but then they say, then I won't know whether he's alive or dead. I won't know, won't know where he is. And I said, trust me, he'll get a cell phone and call you. Yeah, that's what I always. They're gonna need money. They're (laughs) they're gonna need money. They'll get a hold of you. Um, You know, and the the whole idea that you're providing a cell phone so that that's not why you're providing them so they can get a hold of you. That's it's just you want to feel that you're providing something. Just because what we're asking parents to do, what we've done, it goes against every law of nature as a parent because it it requires near abandonment of that child to allow them to become an adult. And because we haven't let go a little bit at a time like we're supposed to, we're being asked to like those little birds. Let that, completely go. It's it's a four hundred meter drop instead of a four foot drop. Yeah. We're asking him to do, and we're we're trying to do it all at once. And it's similar but different to those. You know those pregnancy packs that they throw on men to say this is what it feels like to a woman who's pregnant carry this around. No, I've never had that. Okay, <laughs> they, they, they have these things, and it's not fair because you're throwing it on all at once. Whereas they slowly develop the muscles. And so if you're a parent like I was, we've kept such tight reins on the kids thinking we were helping them and we were doing so much for them. Trying to protect them. Yeah. So when we get all that weight thrown on us all at once, which is actually letting them go, we don't have the muscles for it. And it's really uncomfortable. So what are some pointers? This is some pointers I've said. And tell me if it makes sense or not. So I I always remind the parent 
because they like to say, oh, this girl is bad. Like, usually if it's a boy, the girlfriend is bad. Well, I can tell you, you know girls I mean? are bad. I have two boys. <laughs> girls are just bad. Nothing personal, women. But, but you got to say, you got to say, what do her parents think of your son? Oh, well, they probably know that their daughter is taking my son for a ride. No, they don't. <laughs> 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 but but you know what I'm saying that we got to stop identifying bad kids, good kids. They're all just kids, right? <laughs> okay. Do you understand? Yeah. No, I do. And and all parents do it. I did it. Like I was like I, there was, you know, I don't want to get into it too much because I know my son doesn't like that I talk about him. But there were times when he had, you know, significant others I was not fond of. I didn't make that known. I didn't align with him once they broke up and say she's bad. It's it's not your no, job. No, because then they'll get back together. It's not your job. And then you're just sunk. You're being me all of a sudden. <laughs> you just became me. No, because if you do, the first time you step in with a friend and go, dude, that chick was no good for you anyhow. They end up married. And then you don't get to go to their house for a Super Bowl. And I don't even like the Super Bowl. I just like the food. <laughs> you like going there. Yeah. But I, I just don't, I don't think that in relation to our kids, you can't just say, oh, you know, I was talking to a mom today and like, I know that that somebody who's seeking heroin will find somebody to help introduce them to it. It's not like you're just walking around a non-heroin ever doing person and then somehow somebody goes, hey, do you want to try some heroin? You go, hey, right. yeah. Right, no, it, that's huge because people do that all the time. I hear people go, because I did it with my brother. People go, you know, I got them high for the first time. And I always tell them, they were hanging out with someone who they knew was doing it. Yeah, Probably hoping you'd ask them if you they wanted to do it because they didn't have the balls to ask you, hey, let's do that like like what you did. You know, hey, you went to somebody who you knew was doing it and you hung Top around. Jimmy. And you hung Top around Jimmy, until, baby. You hung around until it was offered, until it came up, and you pretended to know what was going on. That's the same thing. Yeah, we can feel guilty, but I mean, at that time... No, I just don't want parents to blame other kids for their kids getting on drugs. That goes on no, a lot. And I want, if there's anybody out there that's still harboring that guilt, let that go. That would have been found anyhow because they were seeking if they find it. And your kid was seeking. If some bad girl gave your son drugs, because I know that happens. It's Jesus, because you're kind of a little guy <laughs> slanted here because you have two, no. you have three <laughs> sons. No, I'm just saying that your, your son was looking for it if the bad girl gave him drugs. Your son was probably looking for it. Anyway. Here, let's let's be even more misogynist. I I grew up with, with with three sisters and a mom. My dad pretty much wasn't home a lot of the time. Girls are just smarter and run the show. And so so whatever comes into a, a Bonnie and Clyde kind of couple, a lot of times the girl has to take charge because the boy is so stupid. That's what I've always <laughs> seen. No, truthfully, don't. Right? No. It's true. Girls are smarter. That's, well, that's true. My wife lets me think that I'm in control of some things when i know i'm not <laughs> so so there if you think we're a bunch of you know misogynist pigs we kind of are but it's a generational thing i used to always say to my sisters that's not racist it's just of his era <laughs> <laughs> no it's, it's still racist. it's true we're not racist we're in this middle era where we're not racist but we are kind of misogynist patriarchal let's pa try to oh, patriarchal it's a patri society yeah 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 we so but i've always thought because i live mostly with women my whole life i just women are in charge of everything in real when it really comes down to it 
And so, of course, in a relationship, a boy and girl, and I see it a lot, where the parents of the boy blame the girl, right? It used to be all, you know, guys are predators and taking advantage. That's kind of been replaced by this equal opportunity kind of society we live in. And girls are getting a lot of blame, and I don't like it. You shouldn't, there's no one to blame but your kid. Right. Nobody in their right mind sets out at 17 to start doing heroin. You know, and I have to say, I have to put the record straight. I hope people know that that was in fun. I don't think they do. I don't think it'll play that <laughs> and, way. And, and anybody, anybody who knows me knows that I respect Mike Mart wants okay, to Mike wrap Mart it up. Okay, Mike Mart wrap it up because you, we're going to have to edit out all your misogynist stuff, Chuck. Oh, damn. Like my rant against the recovery industry last week. Oh, but that was good. <laughs> no, it was cut out. <laughs> I know what you said. <laughs> oh, God. Anyways, parents, keep emailing, keep contacting us on the Don't Die Facebook page because really we just want a community of parents talking. We got to reduce this death rate. We got to get kids the proper treatment. All right. So, till next time, see you later. Bye. Bye bye. Hey, this is Bob, and you can get a hold of Aloe Treatment Centers at 888 595 0235. That's Aloe Treatment Centers in Malibu and Silver Lake, 888-595-0235. Tell them Bob told you to call.